Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies. I'm Pamela Fuentes, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Christine Arce about her new book, Mexico's Nobodies, The Cultural Legacy of the Soldadera and Afro-Mexican Women. Christine Arce, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be here. Chrissy, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. Um, actually, I'm from Los Angeles, California, born and raised. Um, I went to UC Santa Barbara for undergrad and then did my master's at Middlebury College. And then I did my grad work at Cal at UC Berkeley. Um, and now I'm on a, an associate professor. I just got tenure. I'm an associate professor at the University of Miami. Great. And let's start talking about the book. How did you come to write Mexico's Nobodies? Well, it's really interesting because when I was doing my my master's in political science, I took a, a course on Mexican history, and I, I just sort of took it out of interest because I wanted to little to know a little bit more about about my own history, about um, my father's history. So I took a class, and in this book, um, the textbook that we were assigned, that was almost 500 pages, there was three quarters of a page on the soldadera, and I was I was shocked. I was amazed. I found it to be absolutely scintillating that these women were such an important part of the revolutionary movement. And so when I went home and I asked my dad, I said, Bob, you know, who, who are the soldaderos? And he said to me, he replied, uh, they were the wives. I think they were the wives. I said, oh, the wives, huh? And so really what that was was sort of a way to, to sort of soften the description of the camp followers, the women that followed these, these, these men, but also participated actively through military engagement. And so um, by calling them wise, it was a way to, to sort of, also, on the one hand, diminish their active participation, but on the other hand, sort of um, soften it, you know? And so I thought that was really interesting because these wives actually were not always wives, they could be daughters, but they were also contracted contracted employees, but they could also be, of course, uh, cooks, prostitutes, spies. They could ad- in- occupy any number of, um, of roles. And so I thought that was absolutely fascinating. And I also was, was sort of concerned because I had grown up in LA and we, for a long time, we only had a few Spanish channels and we would watch these movies on the Mexican revolution and I'd see these women participating. So I found it very, very strange that um, I had been, even as a, as a Chicana from L.A., had been completely sort of immersed in this cultural imaginary of, of, the, of the soldadera when I only saw three quarters of a page written on them in the textbook. So it absolutely piqued my curiosity, and that curiosity sort of became a, uh, an obsession that then turned into what, um, into the book, into the book. So that's how I sort of began my, my research on the soldadera. 
And what the book is talking about the soldaderas, and the book has two parts, uh, let's say this uh, for our listeners. But you also talk about Afro-Mexican women, and you are trying to balance that out. You uh, talk about the soldaderas, write about the soldaderas in three chapters, and about Afro-Mexican women in other three chapters. And in the introduction, you are telling us about how these two groups have been made invisible from several narratives, even when they are very much present as part of cultural representations of Mexico, of what is Mexican or lo, Mex lo Mexicano in the country and outside. Can you tell us about this relationship and this uh, invisibilization? I don't know if that's a word, but I will use it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, actually, that, that's when I was, when I began my research and my critical inquiry, but right, formal studies into the, the roles of the soldadera, and I, I had moved on from political science to Spanish because I realized, um, a PhD in Spanish, because I realized that um, the humanities as such, but cultural studies allowed me to, to take on these studies in a, in a more critical fashion than maybe history or political science would have allowed me. So when I when I began to study more about the soldadera and I began to sort of voraciously read all the products that include cultural products, novels, films, um, that included soldadera figures, I came upon the novel La Negra Angustias. And then again, I was brought to another sort of shock about how an entire novel, almost the only novel written about a female camp follower, a soldadera, who was actually not a soldadera, but a coronel, an, an actual military um, colonel, could be written about a black Mexican when in fact, you know, Me blacks in Mexico are completely irrelevant as a, um, considered irrelevant in the larger imaginary as a, as a cultural, as a, as a ethnic community. I mean, not until 2015 were they recognized Um, were they given the chance to identify themselves in the interim census? Not till 2015. So for me, that I came upon that second really sort of incredible, palpable paradox, which is the fact that a prize-winning novel would be written about a black female soldadera who actually wasn't a soldadera, who was, you know, not a soldadera only, uh, but rather a, a military agent and actor and authority. So that is what sort of brought me to um, these two parts of the book, which in, in fact, um, some people found confusing. They're like, okay, so it's sort of split because it's about Mexicans, it's about soldaderas and, and Afro-Mexicans. And, and yes, it is, but the irony of it or the paradox is sort of, there's two faces to that because on the one hand, the soldadera um, <clears throat> is a nobody. The ninguneo, the soldadera, isn't necessarily an image because, I mean, you can't go into a taqueria without seeing, you know, images of Adelitas, Los Canales. Yeah. I mean, it's part and parcel of what it means to be Mexican. One of the most important songs in Mexican folklore, La Cucaracha, is about a soldadera. People don't know about that, but it's the way in which they've been sort of... Um, <clears throat> uh, demeaned as, as sort of camp tramps, you know, to, to, for the lack of a better word. Or on the other end, the Adelita, who sort of idealized as sort of the Marian figure, sort of the 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 the, the angel of the home, and you know, the lugar that sort of follows her men into it, valiantly into into battle. There's these two sort of um, binary opposites, but on the same token, by the same token, women, female blacks in Mexico, have been completely 
left out of the historical narrative, at the same time they've been the subjects of some of the most important films. Now, I'm not saying all of Mexican golden era, golden age cinema, the, the, the golden era Mexican film from like the 30s to you know the end of the 50s, there are prominent black figures. I mean, we have four that I discuss in the book, four important films, and when I saw those films, when I read the novel, and then when I actually went back to the, hist the history and the historiography of the colonial period, I was shocked by the fact that they, they they really occupied such an important part of the um, of the colonial of, of colonial society, yet have been sort of excised out of the national narrative by virtue of, of course, the post-revolutionary discourse of mestizaje, but also and, and then when I came to find out many years ago that the second president of Mexico was actually also an Afro-Mexican, it, 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 it became clear to me that. The ninguneo, the nobodiness of both figures, were was was striking and stark at the same time that the arts have picked up. Um, where I mean, at least that's what I argued. Where 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 history and history has let off because even though Soledaderas are presented in very sort of um, uh, pejorative manners, either as the as the or as the angel or as the slut, and the and the mulata is almost inevitably sort of the seductress. Um, it was incredible to me that a, a novel, a prize-winning novel by a very important writer, uh, films, uh, the, including the rumbera films, which while the rumberos aren't necessarily black, it sort of plays onto this displaced blackness that's triangulated through the Caribbean. Um, in addition to um, <clears throat> actual historical figures, such as the one that graces the, the cover of my book. And so that, when I came upon that image many years ago, I was also sort of taken, I mean, the actual title of the image, the, the, it was indexed as, up until two years ago, Soldadera de Michoacán, the, 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 the woman, the Afro-Mexican colonel that's on the cover of the book. When in fact she wasn't a soldadera, she was a colonel. She was a coronela from the Zapatista army, which would have been Morelos or Guerrero, not Michoacan. So for almost a hundred years, in sort of the visual archive of of Mexican um, revolutionaries, I mean, it was lost for a long time and it was recovered. It was misnamed as soldadera from Michoacan, and then only recently. Um, recovered a proper name as Carmen Robles, and so in the, if you if you do like Google searches, you'll find Carmen Robles was actually the transgender Amelia Robles, and people were confusing this very image um, that's been sort of a poster child in certain um, to a certain extent. I say that only because um, the very important exhibit Blacks in Mexico that happened by Sagrario Cruz Carretero and that circulated for six years um, in L.A., Chicago, I think El Paso. Um, that that was one of the primary images that's in the catalog, and that was also on some of the flyers. That was um, um, that 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 that, import, that showcased the important contributions of Blacks in Mexican culture. So, the the paradox of these two figures, where on the one hand the soldadera is is blinds by culturally saturating, I mean the, the 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 imaginary both in film and corridos and photography. I mean you can't that there's. There's there's no there's no end to the images that are glorified of the Adelitas with the cananas and the and the rifles and all that. I mean, even in the period, they were they were sort of glorified and sort of staged as these staged images 
by Casasola and the people that work with Casasola and other revolutionary photographers um, delighting in, in women and all this sort of military heraldry, where at the same time they weren't able to get the right to vote till, if I'm not mistaken, 1959. So there's that irony on the one hand, and then there's the irony on the other hand, where one of the, not the first opera, but one of the first sort of short opera acts um, that happened after Chavez, I don't, um, and created these schools where they wanted to sort of cultivate a, 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 a Mexican expression to opera, one of those three-act operas was La Mulata de Córdoba. That, to me, is stunning that we can have these cultural products that showcase black women, that showcase soladeras, and yet there can be no collective consciousness that thinks about them in their in their particular contributions to Mexican history. It's it's to me it's deplorable that that up until recently we didn't know who that black Afro Mexican soldadera was. That she was called yeah. soldadera de Michoacan, <laughs> when in fact she was a military a military agent and colonel. And so I I, I found one of the images that's both in the archive and national in in Mexico City, but um, that was showcased in. John Raz's excellent book on the photography of the Mexican Revolution that um, a, another image that showcases her in the middle as as um, as Coronela Carmen Robles, but then in the archive in Mexico City, in the um, Inaz Art Visual Archive of the Mexican Revolution, it's indexed as Soldados y una Soldadera, when indeed she's in the center. So there, there's this incredible irony and paradox that I'm attempting to grapple with in the book. And my argument sort of stridently um, embraces the role of the arts, both in defaming and disfiguring the soldaderas and, 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 and Afro-Mexican women who are almost always seductresses, almost always enticing, but at the, almost always sort of playing off almost uh, very common tried and true tropes that I think, um, and I argue, come from the Caribbean, on um, the very familiarity of, of Mexicans with Caribbean cultural production, the, 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 the Cuban theater, the, um, the slapstick theater of the, Cubans, of, the, of, of the Cuban troops that sort of came in through, through Merida and through the port and through Mexico City, through... Um, through tropical sort of um, fetishizing tropical music in the Rubera films, and all, all, there's all these ways in which blackness and female blackness in particular is necessarily sexualized. It's sort of ontologized as like a sexual otherness that sort of comes in and leaves. I mean, that's the legend of the Mulata de Cordoba. She has a name, no history, no background, but is from Cordoba. So that's the irony. She's from Cordoba, but nobody knows where she's from, and then she disappears in a cloud of smoke on a boat and disappears back into, you know, the port, you know, escapes from San Juan de Ulua as she's about to be, you know, tortured by the Inquisition. I mean, that's how the legend goes. So that's that's sort of the, the way in which those two parts connect through the discourse of otherness and ninguneo and nobodiness um, that operate in very different ways as I've described. Yeah, and I think yeah. uh, the, one of the uh, richness of your book is how you bring all these voices together and you connect them and all of these cultural um, representations and how these images are there and somehow we knew 
little or nothing about the actual names or these actual figures. So just to go on some specific parts of your book, in chapter one, you talk about the spaces of the soldaderas and how they, they were there in these scenarios for the Mexican Revolution at the beginning of the 20th century. And one of the parts that caught my attention is when you are talking about the train and the railroads and how these, uh, the train as well as the soldaderas were uh, means or vehicles to create this revolution. Can you tell us more about that relationship? <clears throat> yes, thank you. That's, that was one of my favorite parts actually to write because I think, um, as I argue in my book, that um, one of the, the, the sort of stronger theoretical in, uh, interventions I make is about the occupation of place and space and the way in which women erupting onto the sort of revolutionary scene, leaving their small towns, um, not by the dozens or the hundreds, but by the thousands. Um, you know, as Elena Poniatowska said, I mean, if, if it weren't for the women, they would have run home, the, the men would have run home crying, no? I mean, they, <laughs> yeah. there were no commissaries, there was no infirmaries. For men to eat and sleep and to operate on the revolutionary, in, in the camps, in the fields, they needed, they needed someone to help them out. And these women didn't just provide services, they also provide extremely important um, espionage services that allowed them to occupy multiple spaces. So at the same time they may be preparing their tortillas for their Juan, they were also maybe transferring um, um, <clears throat> messages or they were guarding the municiones or they were doing any number of other very military um, um, roles and then maybe actually intervening, picking up the rifle and taking over. I mean, there were thousands killed on the battlefield and they're completely unremunerated, completely unacknowledged as military agents. So the fact that they could occupy both the domestic and the public spaces is what I'd say is a radical intervention for women because um, in a very traditional, that's why I make the argument, like the mujer decente, I mean, there's a way in which that's racialized in, in terms of class. Uh, racialized, but it, there's also a very specific class understanding of what it means to be a mujer decente. But when you have these women en masse out in the countryside and in the cities occupying very public spaces, it creates a sort of, um, it unsettles uh, hegemonic notions of, 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 of female and masculine spaces. And so also what is public, what is private. So for that, I think that it radically undoes I mean, even at the moment when you have photographers insisting on taking these pictures of girls with cananas and rebosos, I mean, sort of delighting in that, but at the same time staging those portraits, that undoes what it means to be a traditional woman in Mexico. Um, in chapter three, I talk a little bit about the um, John Reed's interpretation of the, the Soldadera Elisabetta, and when I read that, gosh, I guess 20 years ago, I was... I was, I was incredibly impressed. I mean, it was, it was, wow. I mean, a hundred years ago, this woman sort of lost her, her husband or who even knows if it was her husband. I mean, that's what he interpreted it to be or her boyfriend or whatever. And then up uh, and takes off with an American to get a bed for the night and then goes back to the sergeant that picked her up and says, no, 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 no I'm fine with him. So, I mean, that is, there's an incredible amount of, of power and agency that he interprets as absolute abjection, as sort of a female 
objection that the, the, the you know in the custom of her sex and country the way in which mexican women blindly almost brutally brutishly i'm sorry not brutally brutishly follow the men i interpreted it in a completely different way i i for me it was absolutely riveting that she could take off with a man and then he describes it even the, the townspeople having like a like a baile, like it was a, some sort of like festival, and then the musicians come at the door. I mean, they think it's 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 absolutely fantastic that this young woman take off with the gringo for the night, <laughs> and then she returns as if nothing happened. And that's where my intervention comes at that moment between is and as if, and as if I mean as if nothing happened. She's preparing her tortillas for the capitan. I don't know, capitan Romero. That to me signals a critical moment when women are occupying spaces, changing the notion of place and space in a really radical way. And so that to me was, was and you see that in the films. Then again, the films usually end with the woman being domesticated. I and mean, you can, you know, like, um, Enamorada, I think that's what it's called, the one that, um, with Maria Felix. The, yeah, the Maria Felix film. I mean, all the different films. I mean, she comes in as a very sort of, I mean, she's a different figure, but that film in particular is interesting because, you know, at the end, they're always sort of domesticated. Their fire is squelched by their by their maternity. I mean, that's the, the typical sort of um, paternalistic discourse that sort of able, is able to deal with strong female figures. I mean, when it's particularly when they're when they're sort of these motherly figures or they become motherly towards the end. That's what sort of vindicates women in the end it's their their ability to take care of them in or their 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 child so um for me it was it was it was really really important to highlight the way that radically changed notions of womanhood in mexico because it's no it's no coincidence that they weren't i mean because the the suffragist movement middle class upper class mexican women had been had been organizing for many years um olcott um Olcott wrote a beautiful book about the the, 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 the female suffragists and advocates for, 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 for the vote in Mexico and the different um, female center campaigns in Mexico. And, and, and it's, it's no circum. I mean, for me, it's no, there's no way to misunderstand why women were not granted the vote immediately when they were supposed to. And in fact, why they were actually denied their, their place as revolutionary heroes. I mean, many of the women, both middle, lower and upper class, even um, Luis, este, I'm sorry, Leonor de Magnon did not get her revolutionary pension. And she devoted her entire wealth to the revolution and to forming the, the White Cross for the for, for Carranza and was left penniless and couldn't even get her, her autobiography, which is fantastic, published until Clara Lomas sort of recuperated it, put it together and published it, um, I don't know, like 40, 50, 60 years later. So that's what the first part of the book and what the sort of theoretical interventions are there with regards to space and place. And I didn't talk about the train. I'm sorry, I got, I got cut up. But with regards to the train... That is, um, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it, for me, it was fantastic because, yes, the men occupied the train alongside the women, but we, the women were up on the train making an actual home out of this mobile vehicle, like one of the most important vehicles of the, 
of the 20th century with regards to modernity in Latin America, se le fue el tren. I mean, it's the, it's the trope par excellence of modernity. It's the emblem of progress for the porfiriato. Um, thousands of miles of train were, 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 were installed in Mexico at the expense of the peasantry. And so that retaking of that space and actually not just making it a military vehicle to invade and to sort of allow the troops to, fa- to travel quickly, but actually to make it a, a, like a living, breathing home. There's, it's a fantastic. Bolaño's film, La Soldadera, sort of does a really good job with that because it becomes sort of a, its own character in the film. And there's so many incredible shots of the soldaderas resting underneath the train, praying underneath the train, um, giving birth on top of the train. I mean, so, and there's also documentary images from, of course, the, from the Casa Sola archive and others of the women on the train. So part and parcel of that sort of um, disruption of the space has to do with the way in which they occupied it. And they were the last ones. I mean, the soldiers, first the horses and the, and the, and the, and the, and the, and the um, coroneles, also the coroneles and the, the generales, you know, they got to occupy the inside of the train and the horses. And then the soldiers from diverse ranks and then the women, the women were hanging in the lurch underneath or maybe on top. If, if, very seldomly did they get to occupy the center. So that famous picture that I also analyzed in, in I think in chapter one, of the soldaderas sort of getting onto the train is really interesting because it sparked a whole discussion that John Raz sort of documents in his book on photography. Um, and it was, again, just like the, the, the cover of the book, it was disappeared for like 40, 50 years until Gustavo Casasola recuperated it to put it in his, in his um, collection of revolutionary photography and he found it and then was able, and it recirculated all over the world, and he put it, Las Adelitas, our revolutionary women. And so that sort of became the poster child for female intervention. And then there was an argument by John Raz and others, I've heard the argument in different ways, that they weren't actually soldaderas, that they were food sellers, oh no, that they were prostitutes, because the prostitutes would have gone into the trains with the generals, oh no, that they couldn't have been soldaderas, because blah, blah. And so um, that's what sort of, um, that's what sort of um, generated for me this larger discussion as to what does that image mean because it's one of the most important and most circulated images um, of the Adelitas, of the Soledadas. And, and we don't even know for sure that they even were. We didn't know what year it was published. I mean, he later in his book is able to give it a place and a time and a, and a moment. But at that point, it's irrelevant to me when it was actually taken because already the impact and the indexicality of that image as a as a visual as a visual relic of the revolution, but also as a as an index and an icon for Mexican womanhood and revolutionary womanhood, has already been there for almost you know sixty years when Gustavo Casasola recuperated it for his um for his anthology of the of the of the of the, of the photographs. And I'm talking about these cultural images and how important they are. I would like to bring the conversation to music. You have already mentioned eh, Las Adelitas or, or the song La Cucaracha. And these corridos as part of the Mexican Revolution, La Delita, La Cucaracha, La Valentina. What is behind of the names of these songs in regards to real women during the revolution? That's a great question because that's also what, what peaked my... I mean, as soon as I sort of delved into the three quarters of a page that, that stimulated and piqued my interest, I, I, I was able to unravel 
this incredible, this incredible archive of, of knowledge of female participation. And one of those is precisely the role of women in the corridos. And I, most Mexican children, most Mexican people, Chicanos, we've all, we're all familiar with the cucaracha. I think I heard it the other day on a, on my neighbor's kid's toy. Um, it's, it's, it's a, it's a song and a sort of a sonic, um, a sonic sort of souvenir of that of that revolutionary movement that does not give a proper name to the persons behind that. So thus, it's not even considered, at least by traditional corridis, you know, corrido folklorists, as a proper corrido because corridos have a very sort of set. I mean, it, it is a malleable, flexible, fluid form in the sense that um, they, they're not all the same. I mean, they, they're, but they're, you know, octosyllabic. They're, um, they can have any number of estrofas. But one of the most important with regards to the revolutionary period um, components of the corrido is that there be a name, place, and, um, and date. So usually, so this is corrido de, you know, Benjamin Argumedo. So there needs to be like a name and a last name. and. In, in 1915, there needs to be sort of a declaration of a place, and that's part of the performativity of the corrido, and all of those sort of classical sort of narrative elements that are part and parcel of the corrido are absent. Um, Ana Maria Solbeck wrote a fantastic book on the role of women in the, in the Mexican corrido, and um, and talks a lot about the fact that of the, I think she collected I can't remember offhand um, 32, 32 corridos that featured women and of those only two mentioned the woman by name and patronymic, which is a veritable corrido sort of standard. You have to have at least the first name, if not, and usually the last name and and the place that the battle took place, all and where, where where everything is located. So when we get La Cucaracha, I mean, it's basically lyrical, like, no, no, no puede caminar, and it's basically talking about a camp, camp tramp, a camp slut that gets all the, all the troops sort of excited. I mean, but it's incredible that a film was made, one of the most, like, a really popular film with, of course, La Doña was in it. Um, infinite renditions by I don't know how many different genres of music I play La Cucaracha from for my students gosh I play ska traditional versions you know infantile versions kid versions like you know tiene agua you know puede caminar there's there's any number of versions of La Cucaracha there's a, a great one that I talk about in my book which is a Zapatista version of La Cucaracha which talks of is really sort of it's really, really racy um, and prurient that talks about the, it's making fun of the Catrinas who wouldn't help them, the soldados, the, I'm sorry, the revolutionaries, and it, it t- leaves the cucaracha in a really pitiable state, sort of riding on a donkey with snot running down her nose and her legs up in the air. So there, there's, it's a way to sort of very, very much put women back in their place, hmm. not as revolutionary heroes, not as agents, but as, but as entertainers. <laughs> um, but it actually has a, 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 a larger history than that. Um, Sobek and other scholars date it back to the independence corridos, um, to an older variant of, a, of an independence of a corrido from the, from the, from the Mexican independence. So, so it's not clear exactly when it originated, but it became popularized by the Villista troops. 
And the other ones, um, the Adelita, Leonor Magnon, um, makes the argument that that's based on one of the nurses from the White Cross, from the Carancistas. So she does that in her book, but that nobody really knows. There's infinite stories about how La Adelita, but it, that, that in fact it was based on a real, a real, a real nurse, a real woman that um, followed her, her coronel into into battle. And when he died, she took on the the, the revolutionary cause as a as a nurse, maybe a 14 year old. The most convincing sort of the historical point of fact for that corrido is actually Manuel's account which some people reference, but nobody really knows. And then Valentina is completely, it's completely lyrical. It's, you know, si me vas a matar mañana, mata o sea, I mean, it's, it's, it's all about, you know, the sort of typical female, the, the, the supplicant uh, appealing to the female wiles and que me mates una vez and sort of that sort of um, insistence on, 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 on male prowess, masculinity, but also um, the, the idea of, 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 of machismo and death, you know, sort of right away. So the, the, the Valentina also is supposedly based on a real woman. I mean, it has a proper name, but nobody knows. There's different hypotheses. I, I wouldn't dare to venture to claim anyone as correct because it's, it's hard to hard to impossible to know. I mean, even when we have actual visual archival images, it's it's been almost impossible to find out who the names, who, who those people actually are. Mm-hmm. And that's in the Casasola archives, let alone the Corridos. But the most convincing one for me is, is, is um, Leonor de Magnon's account of La Delita as one of the, the White Cross nurses up in northern Mexico. And now we're going to move some centuries back to open the conversation on Afro-Mexican women because the second part of your book titled The Blacks in the Closet opens with some revealing demographics during the colonial era that I think it's important to bring to the conversation. You mentioned, for instance, that in 1810, just about to get started the war of independence in Mexico, well, where is today Mexico, free blacks numbered 10% of the population. Why taking into account these numbers, eh, Afro-descendants were not included in the national project immediately after the independence? So what's really really important of that, and there's been a ton really voluminous and incredible work done by colonial scholars and historians, but not a lot by cultural historians, which is why I think my intervention is important, <clears throat> and I just read some other facts um, with regards to Veracruz and the Cuenca and the, the Sotavento that, for example, in Pacotalpan, those numbers in around 1810 were, were even higher. Um, for Of the 3,000 people, half were free blacks. The other, the other half were indigenous groups. Well, it's not half. It was of the of the three thousand. Let's say like fourteen hundred were blacks, twelve hundred were Indians, and two hundred and twenty eight were Espanoles. And in other places, such as I think he says Cotacualcos and Alvarado, blacks numbered up into eighty percent of the population. So there was an incredibly um, vital and vibrant free black class, and so that's what. Um, sort of gets ignored in the narrative with regards to slavery because we, we've, there's been sort of 
a singular narrative with regard with regards to the transatlantic slave trade that I think the historians have done a really good job of 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 undoing because in Mexico, while there was certainly chattel plantation slavery, particularly on the coast where there were um, where there were um, ingenios, azucareros, there were sugar um, plantations, there were um, uh, coffee and cacao plantations. So the, definitely, blacks were deployed to work in in, in these larger plantations. In Cordoba, there was um, a lot of um, plantations. That wasn't necessarily the model. They were also implied, employed to work in the mines and in the cities. So Mexico City had a very important um, slave population in addition to a free black uh, um, artisan population. So what, 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 what's been recuperated through the archival work of the historians is in fact the very important contributions of blacks early on in the colonial period and throughout the independence movement. So when independence happens, um, as a lot of people have documented in their work, what, what sort of ironically erases blacks from the map, unlike the, you know, the, the, the often touted caste systems that, you know, creates a, uh, a visual, a visual um, taxonomy for blackness and Indians, Indianness that then, you know, separates them. But uh, unlike this caste system, when, um, when they, the second president comes in, he also undoes the caste system, which then erases blackness from the archive it no longer you can by becoming members of the castas they weren't relegated to a subordinate status as blacks or as bosales or as um lobos or or, or or you know the lower you were on the on the caste system the less access you had to certain sort of resources and certain possibilities but that also sort of erased them from the ethno-historical map and so that was sort of a consequence of that that a hundred years later when the Mexican after the in the in the you know aftermath of the Mexican Revolution and then the process of sort of creating and crafting a Mexican national identity as we know Mexico was not a, 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 was not a singular homogenous place. I mean, everyone very much identified with their city, with their town, with their region. I mean, Oaxaca is not Veracruz, is not Chihuahua. Is not, they're radically different uh, communities, um, indigenous languages, cultural practices, accents. So in in that and that zeal to create sort of a Mexican identity, not only do we have, you know, operas being, you know, commissioned by the Chavez sort of um, talleres, not only did we have Mestizaje and Vasconcelos creating this sort of larger narrative of inclusion through the idea of Mestizaje, but blackness was included in that. I mean, the, the Raza Cosmica includes blacks, but it's not highlighted. It's sort of thought of as a as a as a relic in the past. And then what becomes imported are discourses of blackness from the Caribbean, which I think is really important, and, and of course the, 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 the northern border of the US. So um, even though they had such an important part of the, I mean, they were part and parcel of the colonial project. You couldn't have Mexico today without blacks. <laughs> there were more blacks even imported to Mexico where African slaves Imported to Mexico than in the new in the in the in the, in the U.S. and the you know in the United States. So why is it that they're so completely invisibilized? Well, because you know 200 years ago, the, I mean, manumission happened really early on. Unlike the last two countries, Brazil and Cuba, who were the last two countries to manumit slaves, um, they integrated much earlier. 
Even during the colonial period as freeback, so there was a vibrant free class. They integrated into indigenous communities and then became sort of indigenized. So there's a lot of really important work that's recuperating and looking at the roles of blacks, um, not just as a sort of the as the henchmen of the Spanish, which they certainly were. And so there's been a lot of focus up until recently on the antagonistic relationships between Indians and blacks. But in fact, there were blacks that actively integrated into the indigenous communities and um, and um, in very important ways. Um, uh, really, to, to to become an indigenous person, you didn't necessarily there, there wasn't that insistence on phenotype for for different indigenous communities, but rather on on on, on culture and language. So there was a there was an affinity to because of the sort of animistic practices of um, Afro descendants and. Indigenous, so even even in terms of their um, spiritual and philosophical practices, the, the animism there was incredible similarities that allowed them to quite easily integrate into indigenous communities. And when the Spaniards, I mean, and then the more remote the community, the less likely a Spaniard was able to incur in that. So they, they were less likely. And then once you know through through um, you know integration, they, they stopped looking less and less phenotypically African and thus were not considered um, African. Also, it was not in their benefit, particularly um, for land titles, to not be to be African. So there's this incredible, there's this strategic way in which they also appropriated indigenous community uh, indigenous identities because then they weren't they weren't able to to have land rights. And we see that still to this day. I mean, Afro-Mexicans are not even allowed to consider themselves a proper community. They have no access to land because they have no land titles because they're not indigenous. They can't have ejidos. So even the 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 the, the, the system that was part of you know one of the, the good things that came out of the revolution that the blacks weren't able to access those. So it was also a strategic move, both throughout the colonial period and afterwards. But then they were just sort of erased as a like an ethno as like an ethnic category. For good reasons. I mean, obviously, I mean, to, 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 to eliminate discrimination, but then that just wholeheartedly allowed Mexico to deflect its history of slavery and to deflect its black cultural practice onto a sort of tropicalized Caribbean that, you know, through Veracruz. I mean, early on, you know, La Mujer del Puerto, there's all these ways in which Veracruz becomes this sort of like vortex of tropical otherness that has to always be blamed on Cuba or, or, or you know, the, the few blacks that were there during the period that sort of stuck, you know, I mean, they, oh, well, you know, in the puertos, but in fact, they were part and parcel of the, not just Mexico City, not just the ports, not just, you know, the Costa Chica, but the northern mining communities. They were important. I mean, they, they got the blacks to work in the mines in, in addition to the indigenous communities, but they were cohabiting in these in these haciendas that were servicing the mines. I'm sorry, in, the, in these misiones, I'm sorry, that were servicing the mines. And that's part of what I talk about in, in the fifth chapter, where I look at uh, an inquisition case of a runaway slave woman, Antonia de Soto, who has this sort of fantastic life as a swashbuckling runaway slave, bandida, um, muleteer, who travels around freely for seven years, who takes peyote, who ingests psychotropic drugs, who has these sort of visions with San Antonio and with the devil, who makes a pact with the devil. I mean, that's a a trope of the time during the Inquisition to make pacts with the devil. But um, 
it was interesting to me. I mean, so so you can mine the archive and find blacks overrepresented in the Inquisition for sexual dereliction, for moral depravity, for whatever. Also because Indians were considered neophytes, so they weren't subject to the inquisitorial mandates as blacks were. So they're overrepresented there as sexual uh, as derelicts or as, you know, any other number of things. So, but, what, but besides that, what was fascinating to me is that in this case was the, the way that Antonia de Soto was part of, you know, Nueva Vizcaya. She was easily cohabiting with Tepehuanes, with mestizos. Participating in their in their in their spiritual um, practices in their curanderismo, at the same time she was beckoning and sort of summoning this uh, colonial Catholic sort of Christian consciousness to say, oh, you know what, what I did was bad. I I turned myself in. I mean, so there's some debate as to whether or not she turned herself strategically in because if you turned yourself in then you got less of a, of a sort of sentence. I mean, so, I mean, it was strategic to turn yourself in. So it was, it's not clear in the, in the documents that I examined why precisely she turned herself in, but um, you can sort of read between the lines and probably imagine that somebody was about ready to turn her in. So she went and went ahead and did it first. And one of these uh, powerful figures that come from this time and is related with uh, what you are telling us about the Inquisition is the mulata who were, the mulatas and what is their relationship with magic, witchcraft, and sexuality? Um, there's also been a ton of, of historical work. I think Joan Bristol, Laura uh, Lewis, um, incredible historians and uh, anthropologists have done some work recuperating the role of blacks with regards to. I mean, the famous book, Gonzalo Aguirre Beltran, is the. Uh, Magia y Medicina is one of the most important books that talks about the um, the contributions of, of Black Mexicans, of Afro Mexicans to to um, herbolaria, to to um, curanderismo, but to healing. These sort of practices of healing. Now that gets tied into Black magic, and that's part of what the argument is because. Over and over again, there's this way in which blacks are accused of appealing to the devil, of contaminating the white suits. I mean, so on the one hand, you have whites. I mean, they're not whites. You get you have Creole, criollos, mestizos, and white and white or whitish Mexicans, completely dependent on their on their servants to to make their. They were known as the chocolateros. I mean, they were famous for making. I mean, Mexican chocolate. I mean, were abuelita. I mean, those were the, the the black women who who made the chocolate. You know, the black women who made the the sort of potions. And so, a lot of the cases, if you were to look at Joan Bristol's book and some of the cases that I use as evidence in my in my particular um, reading of this case and of the legend of the mulatto de Cordoba, is that they were often summoned to undo the very black magic that supposedly a slave or a servant had had um, imposed upon them. So there's these fascinating cases, this one particular case, which I found really interesting, where where a, a woman claimed from Guanajuato claimed that her servant had, 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 you know, had cast a spell that, you know, produced all these very unsightly sort of poxes and welts on her body. And so in order, and then for her to heal, she summoned these mulato and indigenous, mulata and indigenous, they were very much women, medicinal healers, who, with both Catholic prayer invocations of different saints, but also these sort of medicines, 
were able to heal her from the black magic practiced by her her um, aggrieved slave. So there's this incredible, incredible paradox by which blacks are both needed and sort of um, despised and dispelled at the same time. And so because blacks and and criollas and criol I'm sorry criollos and um, women in particular were the sort of um, repositories of all this medicinal knowledge, and it's also hard. I mean, the, the, there's a there's a very fine line between what's considered magic and what's considered healing, and so there's been a lot of work on that by really important anthropologists and historians that talk about like the you know that the, 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 almost sometimes it's almost the it's it's in the eye of the 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 the, the, the parish or the parroco the, the the church priest to decide whether or not they're practicing black magic or they're actually just you know, deploying traditional healing and traditional medicine. So there's a very fine line between the two, and it sort of depends on how badly the either the the the, the slave owner or the mistress wants to get back at her slave. So it's really difficult, but it's it's over and over again. And then the, the Inquisition cases are replete with women, supposedly black women, curanderas. Um, deploying these sort of magical things. I mean, putting menstrual blood in the chocolate, leaving hairs behind, you know, and, and whether or not that's true, it's sort of irrelevant because they got sort of um, blanketly identified with these derelict medicinal practices at the same time that both female and black um, Mexicans were you know, bone setters, tooth pullers, they were occupying these jobs as empirics because there was a very, very important lack of, of, of um, you know, proper, of, of, you know, trained physicians, particularly in the outposts. Like, I'm sure in Mexico City it was a different situation, but when you're in these areas, um, these colonial centers, these mining centers like Guanajuato, you know, Zacatecas, all these areas. I mean, that was an important role that they occupied. Joan Bristol, in particular, makes the argument that they occupied this place of power by by being able to 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 service the colonial elites at the same time that they were the elites were terrified of them that they were going to, you know, appeal to the devil and cast a spell. So. It's it's that plays itself out because over and over again in the culture. I mean, even in the films, even in the Rumbera films. I mean, the one film that was made of the La Mulata de, de Cordoba, she's a white mulata, but of course there's the 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 the, 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 the son jarocho that's sort of featured in the first like five minutes of the of the film is I mulata to 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 magia macedonia. There's always these, these sort of underlying undercurrents of of sort of sickness and infirmity attached to black female sexuality. So um, it's 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 not uncommon. I mean, it happens across the the Afro diasporic world. Um, you see it all the time in, in Cuba and in the Caribbean, but in Mexico, it's it's very much um, deployed. In part because, like I mentioned earlier, indigenous people were not subject to the Inquisition, but blacks were. So, and blacks were creolized in a way that many indigenous people were not, unless they were mestizos. So they occupied this sort of in-between space in the urban centers that that maybe some indigenous people didn't. Of course, I mean, indigenous people occupied many of the same roles, but but Afro-Mexicans and particularly free blacks were able to sort of circulate in ways that um, were beneficial to them, but also place them 
you know, straight in the eye of the of the hurricane with regards to accusations and magic. So you see that over and over again in the films. I mean, I was just in Tlacotalpan and one of the decimeros, uh, that's a, um, like the poets, extemporaneous poets, had one of his, a beautiful decima about a, about a you know, uh, you know, a negra, preciosa, me cautivas. I mean, it's over and over and over again. I mean, this, I mean, he just made it up on the spot, but it's almost always the same language of, of um, sort of seduction, of, and that, that almost like displaces mestizo and white desire onto this, these, these powers, these sort of supernatural powers. Which, by the way, I found completely present in the art in the in the Inquisition case that I examined. The very same language of seduction um, is present in that in that inquisitor in that in that case where supposedly, and this is an, 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 a documented case that was transcribed by four different scribes, by scribes and by the and the, by the parish priests and then by the um, inquisitors in Mexico City that she apparently seduced the devil and the devil seduced her and then you know so at the same time she's dressing as a man and acting as a bandit and operating in a very masculine domain she's also being seduced by the devil and seducing you know others you know who fall in love with her and then, you know so it's it's almost identical language with regards to black female subjectivity so that is it's part of the story of nobodyness i mean it's incredible that we have these this short opera that was then, you know, recorded, I think like 10 years ago and a really beautiful um, recording that was done by, I forget the name of the conductor. Um, you have a film by, by no less with a screenplay by nobody, by none other than Javier Villarrutia. You have poems by Javier Villarrutia. You have Pablo Moncayo writing the librero. These are not, these are not unimportant people. These are some of the most important cultural figures of me- in Mexico at the time. And they're writing about, you know, mulatas, and you know, and, and this legend that really not a lot of people knew about outside of Veracruz, which I found really interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, and, and talking about films and these representations, uh, uh, you have mentioned uh, some of them during our conversation. Uh, but you talk uh, carefully about them in your book, um, several of the films of the Mexican Golden Age era during the 1940s, 1950s. And you are uh, talking about some of these uh, movies and you mentioned that there are like an uh, uh, attempts to contend with the problem of racism against blacks in Mexico, but you have a really important critic uh, uh, criticism about uh, these films. For instance, I remember when you were talking about Angelitos Negros, this famous uh, movie, you are talking about some of the flaws of this discourse in there. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I, th- that that was another thing that I that sort of <clears throat> I found jarring is that um, that films, important films, would be made about blacks in Mexico. Um, at the same time that they were considered completely irrelevant. So it's uh, Angelitos, and if they were, I mean, La Mulata de, de, de Cordoba wasn't sort of a, a blockbuster. So we can't make that argument about that, but there were important people participating in its in its collaboration. I mean, both from the, from the writers, the screenwriters and the filmmakers, right? But with regards to Angelitos Negros, it was remade twice. 
<laughs> by Joselito Rodriguez. I wasn't made once. It was made once in, in black and white with Infante and then and then and Rita Montaner, and then it was made a second time. And, you know, um, I think it's Marilyn Miller, I'm not sure, somebody did some tracing, and apparently when they were in D.C., it was one of the most checked out films in, in the now defunct video stores, but when there were video stores, it was one of the most checked out films um, in, at the time, and this was, I don't know, maybe like 20 years ago. So it is a very culturally relevant film, and what is important here is that it, it attempts to talk about this racism. I mean, at the same time, it deploys blackface. So, I mean, that's a, that's a very sort of thorny issue too, because it's very common at the time to use blackface. <laughs> um, the Cuban opera bufos, from which a lot of um, Mexican cinema and Mexican rumbera films draw directly from. I mean, the bufos were an important part of of Mexican art at the time and music. That's what brought the danzón. That's what brought all, all kinds of sort of tropical music to to Mexico was precisely the the, the opera bufos, which were you know all the rage in Mexico. They obvious they always deployed blackface as a sort of a strategy to um, distantiate Cuban whites from blacks. At the same time, they incorporate blacks into their cultural repertoire. So that was what how it, I mean even. In 2011, I saw a skit on in a local Miami TV station with this famous comedian, I forget his name, who has La Santera Teresa, I don't know her name, and he's wearing blackface in 2011. So it's part of the cultural repertoire. So it, yes, I, I realize that that's a that's that's that can be a thorny issue because it's 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 it was particularly in the first version of Aquelitos Negro was deployed at the time, and it was very common even in American filmmaking. So it's 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 you know, not necessarily anachronistic to say, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's racist practice. It is a racist practice to use blackface, but it's not uncommon at the time. So I can see, but what is interesting is that it never, they don't use Afro-Mexican um, actors. Um, they use Cuban ones mm. or Puerto Rican ones. And even those actors, um, such as Rita Montaner, and then the Puerto Rican actress in the second version of Angelitos Negros, they feel they have to sort of blacken up in order to sort of really legitimate that blackness. And so my argument there is that by by using blackface, even in the second version, it creates a narrative, oh, look, these poor blacks, we're, we're feeling this is a terrible practice to, for a mother. I mean, there's nothing worse in Mexican society than for a mother to reject her child, and that, and that film is painful to watch precisely for the way in which the white mulata rejects the child and that of course is part of a cultural repertoire that, that derived from Cuban the Cuban play I think it's um Cañé's play and of course the the North American film um I'm forgetting the name of it I mean so that it, it's it's playing off other other narratives that are very similar, so it's not a, a Mexican. And Angelitos Negros is, is a derivative, is riffing off other 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 cultural products that talk about the same issue. But nonetheless, by by overdoing that, by insisting on this sort of Caribbeanness, it's it's really distantiating any possibility of of blacks being relevant to Mexico. So it it creates an argument against racism at the same time. It deploys racist practices and, and 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 makes it almost irrelevant when you can't find people that look black enough. So it creates a very specific argument with regards to phenotype and blackness 
blackness can, I mean, so if you don't look black, you can't, I mean, so that's part of what people today claim about blackness that in Mexico is that, well, they're not really black, they don't really look black, they're not black anymore. So, well, then how are you quantifying or qualifying blackness? Is it only in with regards to phenotype? I just went to a, um, a sort of um, a, a round table in Tlacotalpan at the Encuentro Jaranero with Afro-Mexicans from different regions, the Costa Chica, from Mexico City, and I forgot, I think one from Veracruz, and the three and four of them were at the panel, and one of the most important figures, she made a calendar of important Afro-Mexicans, a 12-month calendar featuring uh, different people who identify as Afro-Mexican, and her argument was, you know, we don't look like they do in Brazil. They also imported um, slaves way after we had abrogated and abolished slavery in Mexico. There wasn't, it was a plantain, a, ch a chattel plantation model, which created a separate, the mestizaje is part of the discourse in Brazil as it is in Cuba, but I mean, there, was the, there wasn't that sort of very specific chattel plantation model that operated with the Casa Grande in the, in the, in the Casa Chica. So what does it mean to be black in Mexico? Do you have to look a certain way? And she, and she argues fervently that no, because when you do that, then you erase, then you erase all the contributions that have, 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 have been made through the last 500 years. I mean, blacks came with the first Spaniards. <laughs> I mean, we know that. The second president of Mexico is black. I mean, the, we had to wait till Obama to get a president here. In Mexico, they had a, a president who was black and indigenous like 200 years earlier. So that yes, that can be argued to be you know part of how Mexicans are not as racist as the U.S. But by utilizing that U.S. Um, the U.S. discourse of race, you're also you're also not acknowledging the incredible invisibility. That you're then and the the disappearing of blacks from the the, the, the historical cultural, but most important, like the sort of um, political, cultural, historical imaginary. So that that disappearing act is just as racist. And so that's what these films yeah. do by displacing it all into the Caribbean. And it, and it's not it, it's not. I mean, there is an important, Mexico is part of the Caribbean, it's part of the Gran Caribe, and not just Veracruz, we have many that, it, it, there is this incredible, I mean, the, the, it, it was called at one point on a French map, the, the, um, the Mexican archipelago, <laughs> so there's this archipelagic thinking with regards to Mexico as part of the greater Caribbean, so it is, I'm not in any way stating that it isn't, in fact, the opposite. But by using that as an excuse, you then can talk about, well, you know, it's not like it was in the U.S. Well, no, it actually wasn't. We had more blacks in Mexico than, than in the U.S. Or it's not like it was in Cuba. Well, you know, Cubans were the, I think, no, Brazilians were the last to abolish slavery right after, shortly after the Cubans. It's a very different relationship to blackness, and it's a very different sort of, um, model. So, and it was much earlier on. I mean, they stopped in, they stopped bringing in slaves. Um, I mean, they sort of very much had sort of slowed down. I don't know. I can't remember the dates, maybe like three, four decades. Um, by the end of the 18th century, there were, there were no blacks really being shipped in, not as many. And, and at that's at the precise moment when it had been sort of accelerated because of the sugar boom and the coffee boom in Brazil and in Mexico, I'm sorry, in Brazil and Cuba. So, yeah, I mean, but if you only qualify blackness with regards to phenotype, then you're then you're undoing 
and you're erasing 500 years of, of history. Yeah, and I don't want to end this conversation without talking about the amazing Toña La Negra. I, I would like to hear uh, how do you um, place Toña La Negra in this narrative? And also it's unavoidable, <laughs> I think, to talk about Veracruz music and all the heritage of Afro-descendants in, in Mexico. Well, it's, it's really interesting because um, I learned a lot, you know, as a lot of Chicanos do, uh, I learned a lot about Mexico through my dad's, you know, by going there every year, but also by, by you know, living with my, with my Mexican family intermittently for years at a time, they'd come and go, but also because my dad was a huge fan of music and he was a musician himself. He played the guitar, played the mandolin and, um, Part of being Mexican, uh, part of the Mexican, I'm sorry, um, musical industry, Los Angeles was sort of a nodal point in that. A lot of even the recordings happened in Mexico, the distribution, the companies, a lot there was a lot of distribution of Mexican music in Los Angeles. So as, in terms of like the circuits and the centers, L.A. was a really important place. And my dad would always go to, to downtown L.A. and buy records. And one of the records, a lot of the records he bought was Tony La Negra because he was a huge fan of... of um, Musica Veracruzana, este, Son Jarocho, but also Musica Tropical, you know, Boleros. So I remember the first time I pick up a cover of, a, of an album that's, I don't know, 60 years old now, and I see a black lady gracing the cover, Antonia La Negra. And I was like, huh. And so I asked my father, oh, yeah, yeah, she's one of those important singers. She had this incredible voice. She was the interprete mayor de, de Agustin Lara, and this and that, and this and that. And I was like, oh, I didn't realize blacks were that important. He's like, well, there's not that many. But yeah, she was really, really important. She was from Veracruz. They're all, there's a lot in Veracruz. No? So part of like that, that, that idea, that discourse, that through no, nobody's fault of their own. I mean, there's, I mean I, I, I've been in, in Afro-Mexican communities such as Tamiawa, such as um, in, in Veracruz, where people sort of didn't realize they were black, even though they're black. Phenotypically, they, they have very strong phenotypical features of blackness and have learned that as a sort of, as an identity. And so people can criticize that and say, well, they're, they're just adopting that, they're learning that. But, but I, I, I talked to a lot of people through the um, Proyecto Ato Tamiawa who were able to really talk about what that, that sort of realization was and a sort of epiphany of this lost and disappeared and unspoken about history and so a lot of people got really emotional when they talked about it and I thought that was really interesting because how can you look at yourself in the mirror and not and not, th and not know anything about that and so they're, rec they're doing this real important job by the community members themselves to recover and recuperate this sort of lost heritage with the arts of fishing with the particular ways in which they fish and shrimp and um I'm sorry to go back to Tonya La Negra the irony of her as a as a as a cultural figure is that she is one of the divas of the Mexican bolero, in part because she sang música tropical, and also in part because she was one of the, the you know, uh, Agustín Lara's most important sort of singers. And she's in, I don't know, I think over 40 films. And so she's the darling of, 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 of Mexican golden age. I mean, she makes, I don't know how many cameos and how many films, and I don't know how many albums she made. I mean, she's one of the most important figures. 
and she's actually given a name, Doña La Negra, and, and so it's important because that was popular at the time, particularly with Cuban with Cuban with Cuban performers to be given this sort of like this sort of nickname, La Negra Negro, sort of authenticated your sort of musical virtuosity as a as a rumbero or as a as a as a as a or as a singer, as a as a songwriter, as a as a musician. There's this way in which being closer to Caribbean blackness sort of authenticated, sort of validated. And, and so um, the, the the scholar Rafael Figueroa makes an incredible discovery when he interviews people who worked on these films, like these elders, these people who worked on these films, that they would actually replace black, I'm sorry, Mexican, mestizo-looking musicians with more Afro-Cuban-looking musicians to sort of create this, there's this way in which blackness is fetishized only as a cultural sort of product in this, in this, in this realm of sort of exotified, exoticized tropicality, and Tonya La Negra operates within that realm. I mean, she's as Mexican as they come, claimed and heralded as, as one of the divas of Mexican, of Mexican music. Uh, by the most, one of the most important Mexican songwriters, Agustin Lara, and yet her blackness is pretty much ignored, you know, mm-hmm. or sort of explained away uh, by her relationship to 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 these Caribbean cultural musical forms. I'm sorry, musical forms that she participated in. And so, in, in some of the films, it's really interesting. I think I I talk about it in my chapter on Doña La Negra, where I talk about Doña La Negra. That in when she's playing a jarocha, at least in the visual archive, I saw. Um, her face is sort of whitened up. Oh. When she's playing a rumbera, there's, you know, she's allowed to be a little more black. So I, I, that's really interesting to me how blackness and whiteness plays itself out in her as this figure that sort of that sort of incarnates Mexican blackness at the same time it it, it, it openly ignores it. No, and so, but it's 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 visually, and I'm sorry, it's it's sort of sonically articulated in this audiotropic. Um, landscape through her through her voice I mean there's there's the, the, her blackness is part of what makes her voice so special and that's where that film I, I talked about um, actually the Negros Mi Color becomes important because that film actually puts that into play um, I don't know if you remember that film but Negro Mi Color is about a white mulata so it, it you know deploys the typical tropes of mammies black mammies and mean white black mulata white mulatas who don't want to accept their blackness but what that film does talk about, which is really important when we think about Doña La Negra, is that blackness becomes sonically articulated. She can't disguise her blackness in her voice, and that's actually what makes her, as a as a as a woman, as a very you know as a woman who a marginalized woman who's been dumped by this white lover, that's what makes her a superstar, <laughs> is her voice, and that's what she inherited from her black mother, and that's what she that. That is, she's unable to disguise the blackness in her voice, and that's what that film, which is, which is an okay film, but it talks about really important issues. In that, it, it talks about um, even though it's you know it's sort of like um, it's a it's you know it's sort of cliche. It deploys all the typical cliches of of, of mulates and black women and this and that. But that part of it I found fascinating because she's a white woman that in the film sings can only sing with a black timbre and a black tenor um and Tonya la negra is able to sort of capitalize on that 
sort of fetish at the same time become the most one of the most one of the most I'm not gonna say she's the most but she's one of the most beloved sort of singers yeah in, in, in the Mexican musical repertoire, um, such that, in, you know, uh, Chicana in L.A. can pick up the album. I mean, I grew up with the music just like I grew up with Agustin Lara, just like I grew up with all the boleros, just like, I grew, you know, I grew up with all that music partially because my father was was a musician and my family was very musically inclined and we would always play that music. Um, that's how I, I got to Tonya La Negra and it was, it just sort of, you know, between reading the novel La Negra Angustia, seeing the films of the Soldaderas, and, and then listening to Tonya La Negra, it became clear to me that these women, while very different, all had something really in common, and that's their illusion and their nobodiness, you know, the, what I call nobodiness, you know, their ninguneo. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, we've taken up a lot of your time. I'm pretty sure we could talk more and more because these are not the only topics you cover in your book. But um, before saying goodbye, uh, can you tell us what other projects are you working on right now? Sure, I'd love to. I'm actually, um, I just came from a, a trip to, to Veracruz. And so one of the projects I have sort of in the works, and I just published a, a short article on it, is on on Son Jarocho as like the sort of transnational democrat like politicized movement. And so the, 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 the sort of vibe is a Son Jarocho as sort of... Um, a democratizing movement um, that sort of looks back to this really what at one point was a moribund more musical genre, which is you know typified by La Bamba. So for me, it's really important, and a lot of people are working on that too. But it's it's incredible how what was at one point considered a moribund musical genre is now becoming sort of a transnational movement. There's encuentros jaraneros that that they I mean there was an active impulse by um, Mexico, Mexican cultural Vera, advocates in, in Veracruz and Tacotalpan in different parts to, re, to resuscitate the fandangos in Son Jarocho um, 30 years ago in 1979 we had the first encuentro and it's incredible now here in Miami we're going to have our first encuentro oh. <laughs> in exactly one month and I've been participating in that in, in this sort of emergent sort of Jaranero group so well there's a lot of talk of cultural appropriation that the Chicanos don't you know that, that you need to sort of go back to the countryside it's created this it's become a vehicle of political dissidence of, of what I call um, riffing off Anadini sound dissent this, these sounds of dissent so there's groups in Acayuca and Veracruz that are that are Um, working actively using Son Jarocho and going back to the what they call the, the señores, los ancianos, los la gente grande, both female and male, to talk about what the fandango can cultivate with regards to community building. And with the you know the recent violence in Mexico, they've they've used that as a way to dissent mm. as a as a as an or as a sonic musical dissent, but also an alternative to. Um, Alternative sort of political discourse. Even in a documentary I just saw the other day, they they talk about it as a as a as a utopian utopia where gente grande, gente may, you know, chamacos like young people, elders can come together around the tarima. I mean, that's a 300 year old practice that dates back to Afro Mexican practices. So it's for me incredible that that has taken on an international expression. Now, whether or not they're understanding it, whether or not it's been appropriated, I know a lot of people. Um, my friend and colleague Rafael Figueroa says that if you didn't 
grow up by the Rio Papaluapan, which is the Rio of the Sotavento where San Jarocho was born, then you have no right to enter the place on Jarocho. <laughs> You know, some of the elders are like, wait, well, why are these Chicanos so interested in us? And at the same time, they're proud of it. So I think it's it's a fascinating musical, cultural, and political phenomenon. You know, there's Jaraneros in Mexico City who were, you know, denouncing the 43 disappeared kids in Ayotzinapa, yeah. using son jarochas, using decimas. So it's a very powerful musical vehicle that, that can both entertain and be fun, but also be... Um, a source of dissent, but also cultural recuperation, and that's the role it played in, in for the Chicano. So that's the, one of my projects. Um, the other sort of smaller project I have is that I'm um, I'm working on a transcription, a bilingual edition of the Inquisition case I mentioned earlier. It's really oh, important to me with a critical introduction and notes, um, and I'm collaborating with other scholars. Um, I had to put it on the side because when I was working on it, I had sort of to go up for tenure and then my dad got sick and there was all these other things but it's the work is all done but for me it's 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 really imperative that not just scholars who can have the time and luxury to get the Archivo General to read this Mm -hmm. account of this runaway slave who in 1691 took off and and became um, a cross-dressing bandit and then you know sort of made her own fortune in in northern Mexico I think this it's such a an incredible account both for Afro-Mexicans, for women, and for and that undoes the traditional narrative that opposes antagonist that creates antagonistic relationships or insists on the antagonism between blacks and Indians. I mean this this case really blows all that up. So um, it's a smaller project that I'm hoping to get done. Um, it's already been transcribed, um, about three quarters of the way translated. Um, I'm not a colonial scholar, the paleography was hard, but I finally got through that with the help of Mexican colleagues who are colonial, you know, paleographers. Um, Arturo Mota uh, helped me immensely on the paleography. So that is um, what I'm hoping to get done in my sabbatical. And then my third project, which I have a few chapters already written on, is on Zapatismo and the Corrido. As you see, I'm really interested in popular music, but also um, popular balladry. So the Corrido was an important vehicle in the Mexican Revolution, as, as I we talked about earlier with I mean, one of the most important cultural expressions of, of Mexican female revolutionary power was through the corridos, even yeah. though they didn't know who they were, you know, the Lita, even though they were sweethearts, sluts, or, you know, or um, femme fatales like the Valentina, but nonetheless, the corrido form current and contemporary Zapatista activism um, is what I'd like to think about, the, the relationships between the revolutionary corrido in, during the revolutionary period, the Ciclo Zapatista, the Bola Suriana, and the way in which um, corridos in the contemporary and, and, and language and oral expression in the contemporary Zapatista movement. There's been a lot written on Zapatismo, of course, but my particular bent has to do with connecting oral balladry with the sort of political oral discourse of indigenous Zapatistas today, in particular in the writings of su de Marcos. So those are my three projects. I have a little bit done on each one, and so hopefully <laughs> this year I'll get one of them finished. <laughs> all of them sounds great, and I think all of them are more than necessary. So I will be looking <laughs> forward to knowing uh, how they end, and I'm pretty sure a lot of uh, our listeners and colleagues uh, would love to know more about your projects. So I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really, really, really enjoy it. Take care. Thank you so much, Pamela. Thank you. This was really wonderful. Such an honor. Thank you. Thank you. Good night.